I'm sorry. No, no, Clifford, don't, don't. I, I don't want to hug you. I, I can't imagine anyone ever wanting to hug you. I really am sorry. You really are sorry? You know, sorrow is, is a human emotion. And as we know, you're not a human boy. You're just this, this destructive thing. Eventually, everyone just gets to hate you. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the bestest film podcast in the whole wide world. My name is Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Paul Flaherty's 1994 dark comedy, Clifford. During the discussion, we mentioned Roger Ebert's negative review of the film, and I wanted to read a quick excerpt from it, specifically Ebert's final paragraph. Quote, What we have here is a suitable case for deep cinematic analysis. I'd love to hear a symposium of veteran producers, marketing guys, and exhibitors discuss this film. It's not bad in any usual way. It's bad in a new way all its own. There is something extraterrestrial about it, as if it's based on the sense of humor of an alien race with a completely different relationship to the physical universe. The movie is so odd, it's almost worth seeing just because we'll never see anything like it again. I hope. End quote. Well... Carrie, Emily, and I aren't exactly Ebert's symposium dream team, but we're still going to give it a shot. Here's Carrie with the plot summary. Martin Daniels is about to ask the woman of his dreams, Sarah Davis, to marry him. But Sarah has reservations. She isn't convinced that Martin wants a family like she does. To prove Sarah wrong, Martin invites his nephew, Clifford, to stay with them for a week. But Martin hasn't seen Clifford since he was a baby, and he has no idea that Clifford has grown into a manipulative monster child. Can Martin withstand Clifford's devious ways, or will Clifford turn him into an evil uncle? Now, the core of the film is the way in which Clifford, played by Martin Short, destroys the life and sanity of his uncle Martin, played by Charles Grodin, over a simple broken promise. Easily the most successful element of the film is Charles Grodin's performance, which escalates believably from a nice, if imperfect, man to a rage-filled fiend that genuinely contemplates child murder. In our first clip, taken from right after Martin picks up Clifford from the airport, you can hear the baseline in Clifford and Martin's relationship, as well as in Charles Grodin's performance. Here's that clip. Dearest Uncle Martin? Yes, Clifford. Can we go to Dinosaur World now? Dinosaur World? It's closed. It's, it's 10.30, Clifford. But I'll let you in on a little secret. I've got a lifetime past the Dinosaur World because I designed Larry the Scary... Scary Rex? <laughs> you designed Larry the Scary Rex? I'm Larry the Scary Rex. I'm a scary dinosaur. But don't be scared of my sharp, sharp teeth and my mighty, mighty roar. <laughs> oh, boy, you are some sort of hero. Let's go get your backs. Yes. And this next clip, from about 40 minutes later in the film, should give you an idea of how far everything devolves. Here's that clip. And I had to be made naked in the jail. I was strip-searched. I was, I was humiliated. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I made the tape. Oh, God, it was wrong, Uncle Martin. And why did I do it? Why? 
I think I know why. Because I was so angry at you for having promised that you would take me to Dinosaur World and then breaking that promise, Uncle Mark. What is it with you and Dinosaur World? It's a sick thing. It's like you're obsessed with this Dinosaur World. I believe the Dinosaur World is the only place where a boy like me can be happy. Leave the dinosaur over there. Just leave the dinosaur over there like that. I'm trying to tell you something. When I, when I was a little boy, you know, you touch the dinosaur, I'm going to kill you. Stefan wanted to stand here. Give me the dinosaur. No. Give it to me. I ripped its head off. Give it to me. God almighty, boy. Just for context, that last clip comes in the aftermath of Clifford calling in a bomb threat using a manipulated recording of Martin's voice, which is what landed Martin in jail. The film's other important character is Sarah, Martin's fiance, played by the ever-reliable Mary Steenburgen. Sarah exists primarily as a means of driving the plot forward and creating conflict between Clifford and Martin. However, in our last clip, which features Sarah ranting to herself in the shower after coming to believe that Martin doesn't want to have children with her, you can hear some small attempt at characterization. It's not exactly endearing, but it is very typical of the film's cynical sense of humor. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for our discussion of Clifford. Just face it, Sarah, you're going to be alone the rest of your life. Like that maid on the Brady Bunch. Faking enthusiasm for other people's happiness. Oh, and then there's, of course, the pity of others to look forward to. Isn't that Sarah Davis? My, she's aged. She drove off every man she ever had. She just withered up like an old prune. going to talk about Clifford, the 1994 comedy? <laughs> Not the big red dog. Not Emily the... Elizabeth and the Clifford Goofy movie. Yes. <laughs> Is your middle name Elizabeth? Yeah, I'm Emily Elizabeth. Oh man, just like the character from the book, except not this movie. Yeah, but no he, one no one in this, there's no just, crossover. He just wears a lot of red. There is a dog in this movie, but yeah. there's no big red dog. And that dog is merely a joke. Merely a cruel thing that happens to another character. Yeah, what happens to that dog? I'm sure it he's... chases the cat. <laughs> Realistically, he's probably dead based on <laughs> the way every joke plays well, out. Well, this movie was filmed like 25 years ago, so he's definitely yeah. dead. Alright, well, as we said, the movie we're talking about is Clifford. And I I saw this... Carrie and I just rewatched this recently, and so we knew we wanted to talk about it. But I had only seen this once before, probably back in like 1996, when I was a young enough kid where I could 
trick my parents into seeing movies <laughs> like this. And I remember specifically all of us hating it. My mom, my dad, and I, I don't know where my sister was, but it was just a, a slog of a movie to get through as a kid. It was I can, really difficult. I can just imagine young Paolo, Mom, let's go to family video. Take me to family video. We were a blockbuster family. Oh, We lived well. in one of those towns. But, uh, yeah, it's... And it has a very, the reputation it does have is that it is that terrible. Roger Ebert gave it a half star out of four. What? That's so low! <laughs> yeah, that's really low. <laughs> and he said in his review that out of 150 people in the audience, only two people laughed, one apiece. And he was one of the two people. And the other laugh was immediately after he laughed. And otherwise, it was dead silent through the entire screening. That is because the three of us were only, like, five years old when this came out. Yes. Six years old. And, yeah, I think... We could have been there to laugh at it! <laughs> we could have. Well, if I'm being honest, I think if I saw this kid this movie when I was a kid, I don't think I would have liked it. No. Oh, oh, as a kid, no. Because it's not a kid's movie. Yeah, and it's and they kind of talk about this in a lot of things. It was sort of pitched as a kid's movie to some degree. And it, it, the main character is a kid to a degree. I mean, we'll talk about this for sure. <laughs> but it is like in every way designed like a kid movie. But the lesson seems to be that kids are awful. Like universally across the board, <laughs> awful. And at best... You get through dealing with a kid and they grow up and become a good person, but that that's basically it. There's not really a better a bigger lesson in the movie if there is another lesson than kids are horrible. And yeah. Clifford, the character, is his the plot of the movie is him proving how awful he can be to the person who wrongs him. I just want to say too, because you're gonna get into the plot. Yeah. This was like rewatching a little bit like um Dennis the Menace. Yes! It's the same so, kind of thing. In the 90s, it was big for kids to just be shitheads. Yeah. yeah! Yeah, what's up with that? I wrote down a list of all the 90s movies I thought of where kids are either terrible or they hate their parents. Like, I remember when we watched North? Yeah, did you see that that came out the same year oh, as this? Oh, jeez. I mean, this was made a different year, but... This, in the in movie theaters in 1994, Clifford and North came out. Oh, Parents brother. were tricked into some horrible experiences. Well, like and it. North is the movie that inspired Roger Ebert to write, I hated, 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 hated this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that movie is really bad. Actually, you know what else came out in 94? Milk Money. Oh, no. <laughs> Because, like, that kid tries to have sex with a prostitute. <laughs> also, I wrote down The Stupids. Yeah, God. I wrote down Dennis the Menace. You said Mouse Hunt. Yeah, Mouse Hunt. Also, another movie that stars um, someone from Clifford, uh, Beethoven. Beethoven, yeah. in what year was that? Do oh, you I, know? Don't, I don't because know. Because Grodin plays the same character where he's just an angry guy who doesn't really <laughs> like kids, but he puts up with them, and at one point he yells at a dog. Yeah. Well, but isn't Beethoven that he's mad at the dog and not at kids? Yeah, but his kids are the reason there is a dog, and he just doesn't understand them at all. And he gets mad a lot. 
I wonder if with Charles Grodin movies, he's not supposed to be that mad, and he just brings that to the role. Yeah, do you think that's who he is? He well, is, I, yeah, he's a huge grump. Well, you know, actually, I, I, I'm t- I read in his trivia that he got um, the stereotype of being like a grumpy, curlish man, because when he went on to do his first talk show interview, he was going to be on Johnny Carson, and he was going to follow... Diana Ross doing a medley of the Supreme songs. And he was like, man, nobody is going to remember me after (laughs) Diana Ross doing a medley of her songs. And so when he went on to Johnny Carson, he acted like an asshole to be memorable. And then he just adopted that persona for the rest of his career. Yeah. So I, I love that. Yeah. So he finally revealed that. In 2005. So he had gone like 40 years yeah. of being like a total dick. Because I've, I've definitely seen those interviews where he's been on Conan and he's just like not making eye contact. He has like a, ball, <laughs> a baseball cap on during the interview and stuff. Yeah. But it, it was all an act. It was all just to be memorable. He's like apparently actually method acting. Yeah, yeah. he's supposedly an actually well, nice guy. Well, that's that's good to hear because I love Charles Grodin and I, another reason to love Charles Grodin is always great. But man, if there is one actor who is better at playing <laughs> anger <laughs> and like <laughs> and frustration, frustration, I can't think of a better person because <laughs> this is and it's crazy because he doesn't overact at any point in this movie. He somehow underplays comic anger at like every turn and it's it's so it's so funny just because of how you can feel the hate like like sliding out of his teeth whenever he says anything to Clifford. Oh, it's so good and so good to watch his like eyes twitch. But I do you want to get into plot now? Yeah, well actually I kind of said all my thoughts. Do you guys have any other? Well, could I yeah. had, Emily, you want to go? What did you I think of this to, movie? Well, really quick, I wanted to piggyback on anger because at first when, when you see that Clifford's parents are introduced, they're on a flight to Hawaii, and so we know he's going to be awful, and you see that his dad is Richard Kind, yeah. and this <laughs> oh, guy, is his, he fits his name. He's so jovial. I mean, he played Bing Bong in a, in a <laughs> Pixar movie. And I was like, how could he be angry? He's and he a- did it. He got angry. Yeah. He <laughs> did a good job of uh, being really mad at Martin Short. And uh, he's also like four years younger than him when this was filmed. And he <laughs> <is> his dad. <laughs> when he delivers that line, "Is there no end to your madness?" and his own child, it's like it's surprisingly believable. Like the movie starts. I mean, the, to start with Richard Kind is such a smart move because Richard Kind is such a good. He's like he's he has so much less screen time than Charles Grodin, but he's equally effective at just like being that angry parent and. I, I don't know, especially, like, we don't have kids, obviously, but watching it, you don't need to, like, have first-hand experience to understand that kind of anger that he's going through with his kid. Yeah. If you've ever, if you've ever just been on a subway with a parent who has, like, an awful kid and you just or watch Or just them, in the grocery some, store. Yeah. yeah. And, and you just watch it and you see the parents who are just, like you know that this is their life. Like, for you, it's a momentary inconvenience, but they're going to go home and continue to be with this kid. And Richard Kind, like, his wife, 
uh, Theodora, I think her name was, yeah. is just, like, drunk. Like, every scene that you see her in, <laughs> the character is just drunk. So Richard Kind basically has to do all the heavy lifting for what a nightmare Clifford is. Yeah, if you're having a hard time picturing what Richard Kind looks like, he was in Spin City, he was in A Serious Man, and as Emily mentioned, he is the voice of, like, a character in every single Pixar movie. He's in... Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, but I was trying to think of who Who he's the voice. Who is he in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? He's the teacher who's trying to go to the rubber room. Yes. Yeah. But I was trying to think of who Richard Kind is the voice of in A Bug's Life. Oh, it's... I don't don't know that movie well um, enough. I can't remember which bug it is, but... And he's also... I'm pretty sure he's the voice in Toy Story... He was a voice in Inside Out. He was a voice. Yeah. He's been a voice in, like, every Pixar movie. And it's usually the, um, like, doofy, affable, yeah. like, sidekick. Yeah, he's a, yeah. he has a very lovable it's voice. So nice. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you heard Bing Bong, it's like, he's he's not really exaggerating his voice at all to play Bing Bong. He's just, like, just be, being happy version of himself. And, um... Isn't he also on Curb Your Enthusiasm? Doesn't he? I think so. He yeah. must have been because this. I mean, this movie has that. It's not exactly like Curb, but it does have that same sort of it like painful cynicism. It could easily had the music play over at any moment. <laughs> God, that we should just make a clip of Charles Grodin's reactions. What with that music? No, Carrie, you. Okay, so my okay. This is only the second time I've seen this movie. I had never seen it as a kid. Which makes complete sense. My parents would (laughs) never let me watch this movie. (laughs) But I just saw it this year, and I thought it was the funniest movie when I saw it (laughs) the first time. Like, the opening scene where Martin Short is holding a butterfly, and then he very terribly, like, forces the butterfly off his hands, and it flies (laughs) away, and then the gates open. I just was cracking up at that first scene. It's so funny. But, as I mentioned, I think if I had seen this as a kid, I would have hated this movie. And I really don't think this is a kid's movie, even though it's rated PG, it's 90 minutes, you know, it's like from the 90s when these were the kinds of kids movies that were coming out. But, you know what this reminded me of? And I I wonder if this is what happened, is that it wasn't supposed to be a kids movie kind of like old dogs yeah where old, oh. old dogs was edited from an r-rated adult film into a pg film because disney like fucked it up so bad and i don't know the whole time it, it like it kept reminding me of old dogs and right. how ab- absolutely absurd it was i i'll agree with that theory just because first off this movie, and again, we're going to elaborate on all this, but this movie really feels like it's missing scenes. Like, yeah. Like, to a, a like crippling degree at times. Like, the ending seems like, uh, I would say it seems like 20 minutes worth of movie is missing during, <laughs> like, the last five minutes of the movie. So much is just glossed over and presumed that we don't care about it when any other movie would know that that's what the whole movie is building to. And the movie... Uh, Roger Ebert mentioned this in his in his review that it has a, an editor that is like a really impressive editor. And so I looked this editor up, Pembroke Herring, and he, I guess Pembroke would be a man's name. Sure. Uh, but Pembroke uh, edit, has a three-time Oscar-nominated editor. And there's two credited editors, which makes me wonder if this is one of those movies where the first editor could not make 
the version the studio wanted, and so they brought in, like, the ultimate editing badass to, like, desperately try to carve this into something savable. And it's interesting you say that because part of what I learned about this movie is... So this movie was uh, filmed in 1990, but it wasn't released until 1994. And part of the reason for that is because it was produced by Orion, the production company, which Orion, I wrote down a list. They produced movies. A lot of great stuff. A lot of great movies. They produced Amadeus, Platoon, Silence of the Lambs, Hannah and Her Sisters, Desperately Seeking Susan, <laughs> RoboCop, yep. Great Balls of Fire, which we're going <laughs> to definitely do in, an, uh, in another episode. They did She-Devil. They did UHF. Man. Oh, Purple wow. Rose of Cairo. Bull Durham. Wow. Like, they did so many great movies, but in the late 80s, they started to struggle with all of the movies they were putting out being huge financial losses even though the year they filed for bankruptcy they actually got nominated for like best picture like silence of the lambs got nominated for best picture the year they filed chapter 11 bankruptcy yeah but because they filed bankruptcy there were a couple films that were in production when they filed bankruptcy that they just like scrapped and gave to another studio and Clifford was one of them and that's why it got released four years after it was made is because nobody wanted to release it (laughs) (laughs) and and so that's another weird thing about this movie is it feels out of time yeah it feels like it was definitely made in the late 80s very early 90s and then to think it came out in the mid 90s no wonder it did terribly. Like, it's not really a kid's movie. Yeah, and 80s movie... And the 80s were way more accepting for this sort of, like... Yeah, and the mid... Semi-iconoclastic portrayals of, like, nor- normal facets of American life. Yeah, but the mid-90s is when Disney was at their heyday. Yeah. And they were doing Lion King and Aladdin No, no, I'm and just saying that. that's why it makes more sense of this to come out in, like, 90. Because yeah. it's, like, right at the very end of that... And mid-94, that's when it's like, we're kind of in the renaissance of, like, children are wonderful, children are consumers. That's when, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is coming out. And so, like, which, I think I mentioned this before, but you know Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is written by Stuart Gordon, right? What? Or, like, the story was. (gasps) What? (laughs) Yeah. Are you serious? I am serious. Oh my god. Keep that in mind. You're blowing Uh, my mind, Paul. You're blowing my mind. Um, so... We haven't really gotten the plot or anything, so let's kind of <laughs> let's kind of move into that. But I think the first thing we should talk about is let's just talk about the character Clifford and Martin Short as Clifford. Yeah. Oh, brother. <laughs> so you guys. Talk- well, so the movie opens as I mentioned with Martin Short, but he's he's like in his eighties, probably. Yeah. Well, the, it's the year twenty fifty. And if the movie is set in present day, so like 1990. So 60 years later. Yeah. So, yeah, he would yeah. be like. Yeah. So, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he'd be like 70. So, he, like I said, he's got this butterfly in his hand and it floats away. <laughs> and these gates open. And the gates are to what? What's the name of the? Wayward Boysville. Yeah. So, he is now a priest at a boys sanctuary? I don't. I don't Boysville. Know. Boysville's where you send like the bad kids who are too young to go to jail. Oh, okay. So 
he uh, is this priest, and of course, there's like a terrible boy running around causing mischief. Actually, wait, that, who's that boy? Who's that boy? It's Boy Meets World Boy. Yeah, it's Ben Savage. Which, oh, baby Ben Savage, he's so cute. But you know what? Before we meet him is one of my favorite laughs, too, is when Martin Short's walking and he gets, like, hit with the ball and then he gets hit with the person and then he gets hit with the suitcase. I think it's ball suitcase boy, so it's, like, build <laughs> yeah. some boy. Savage because, falls on Clifford. Yeah, it's like a full dummy that falls on him. <laughs> it's so funny. So the little boy, he's trying to run away, and Martin Short's like, er, sorry, Clifford says, don't run away, let me tell you the story of when I was a little kid. And then flashback to the whole rest of the movie. All right. But I also, I want to mention this. The framework of this movie is the exact framework of Princess Bride. Another... Another savage. Yeah. Same savage. Well, Different savage? You can't say it's the exact. Well, not the exact, but it's the, What you're saying similar. is it's the exact as in a person tells a story... And this movie is the story. To a little boy who is a bratty little boy who's also named Savage. Yeah. I'm just saying, there's a lot of 80s and 90s movies that are in on the premise of like, oh, little boy, let me tell you a story so you'll be good tonight. Yeah. Like, that yeah. is like... Man, was there like an epidemic of bad little boys yeah, in the 90s? Yeah, because 80s and 90s is when there's an increasing number of divorces and single parents. Uh... That's why every 90s movie has like a latchkey kid or like... Like, think about even like Kazam, where like Shaq is a genie. That boy is like a latchkey kid. Yeah. Like, like every... Uh, last action hero. The kid leads uh... a latch, latchkey kid. Uh, that's also why all these kids get these movies where they're all about the is because so many kids in the 90s are starting to get used to being alone all the time and so you get these movies where it's like hey kid you're probably alone at the movie theater what like what kind of adventures are you getting into or with your stepdad the, or something. yeah there's a lot of stuff that's like i mean even you could even extend this to jurassic park in the way that like steven spielberg became extremely like uh, one of the more dominant filmmakers in the world in the 90s is because of stuff like jurassic park that plays like adults saw it but if you read the reviews most adults or film critics in the 90s thought jurassic park was like a mediocre movie like roger ebert and siskel yeah. were like three-star reviews for it where they're like it looks amazing and the story is garbage like that's like most reviews but kids love jurassic park and jurassic world was the fourth uh highest box office of all time and kids love dinosaurs kids. hence clifford wants to go oh exactly, my god yeah, yeah. there good, you go good tie-in emily and i thought he was going there i wanted yeah. to say it well and this <laughs> well, this was made four years before jurassic park so it's just like but it came out the Ooh, same foresight. year well actually no maybe not the same year but the year after jurassic park um when was jurassic park i, I think it was 93 but it's yeah either way yeah it's the whole the latchkey kid man i the, didn't think the about latchkey it that kid way. the solo kid the kid we're starting to I mean, there are movies like this before, but we're starting to see the mainstreaming of like, hey kid, it's all about you. This is your movie. Like, the world is your adventure. You don't have to grow up. You're As a kid, you're not the sidekick. Every, like, starting to get early on this message into people's heads of like, it's all about you. Yeah, and but this kid also is not all about yeah. that because he's played by a 40-year-old. Yeah. Like, and that's, yeah, and what, what kid is going to watch a kid's movie where it's an adult, again, where they see them yeah, what is, not represented? What made them think that was a good choice? Uh, like, was this supposed to be a Martin Short vehicle? 
I have to assume it was a Martin Short vehicle because what I I don't know Art Martin Short's sketch work that well, but I'm vaguely familiar with SCTV, and the guy who directed he, this movie is from SCTV. Yeah, so good at character. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. I longingly remember Jiminy Glick. Yeah. He was just, like, a fucked up, like, bad <laughs> yeah. guy to interview people, but it was Martin Short, because he just, he, he commits just to a character, bits. so he probably played a kid on, like, SNL or something, they're like, we should make a movie out well, of that. Well, there was Martin Short's character, Ed Grimley, was, like, yeah. a kid character. He was the one, have you ever seen the, a lot of the same, like, flowery language that you hear Clifford using is, is very similar to, like, the way in which Ed Grimley was. But the thing is... I feel like because it has, like, Martin Short was from SCTV, the director's from SCTV, we couldn't really figure out what the deal was with the writers, uh, but there's... Neither of them went by their real names. Yeah. (laughs) And, as I said, there's an Oscar-nominated editor, and the cinematographer for this movie shot Chinatown and De Palma movies and William Friedkin movies. You cannot tell. Yeah, just, we watched it in HD, and it it looked like... It it didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it didn't look horrible, but it, it was, yeah. It, but it, it didn't matter. Yeah. It was like the the 90s equivalent of, like, what we say about, like, Judd Apatow directing, where it's <laughs> it's better, it looks better because it's on film, and they clearly have to try a little harder because, of, I, I don't know, but, like, once, once digital switched over, people really stopped giving a shit about framing shots. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's so weird because, so they have this 10-year-old boy played by 40-year-old Martin Short. And so, as Emily mentioned, the first time we're introduced to Clifford, he's on the plane with his parents. And he ends up causing the plane to make an emergency landing in Los Angeles. Another comedy with pre-9-11 airport yeah humor. yeah well, like emily mentioned i didn't know you could leave your kid at the airport yeah <laughs> yeah you'll just, just babysit him for you yeah richard kind has to go on to hawaii to uh do work or something and he has a genius idea of calling his single brother charles groden who just happens to need to impress his fiance <laughs> to prove that he likes kids so how convenient! It was great, and then you know he meets up with Clifford at the airport, where Clifford then steals a bunch of other people's luggage. Yep, yeah. including a dog. Including the because I forgot that you can check your dog. Well, you said they had a kayak. They had um, stereo. A surfboard. A stereo. Yeah, they had all sorts of stuff where I was like, I could not figure out how that would have even been because they show people waiting at baggage claim for this stuff. <laughs> and so I was just like trying to visualize the dog being like loaded onto baggage claim or whatever. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't they have to check an ID for the dog? Like, oh, you were picking hey, up your dog. Pre nine eleven. Yeah, pre nine eleven, man. A little boy says he lost his dog. Who's gonna say no to that? Hey viewer, this is a good uh, good tip. If you want to know if a movie was written before 9/11 but came out after 9/11, watch how they behave in an airport, at an airport or on an airplane. Uh, this came up in Wes Craven's Red Eye, which came oh, out in 2005, geez. but in which people behave in an airport unlike any person would ever be allowed to behave after 9-11. It's, uh, it's really, I don't know, it's, it, I always get a, a huge kick out of seeing, like, the totally alien portrayals of air travel from eras when I did not go on airplanes. 
Uh, yeah, well, you only started really going on airplanes this past year. Yeah, so it's, like, really bizarre to see, like, the increasingly paranoid and uncomfortable uh, situation that is riding on a plane and then portrayed as, like, a little boy. It's like, I'm bored. I'm just going to go into the cockpit, but I want to go to Los Angeles, so I'm just going to reach up and shut off the engines. <laughs> yep. I That's... hope what doesn't go out of style ever is children mocking their parents' heart disease like Clifford does. <laughs> so, what I kind of what I was saying with the whole thing about like these '90s movies about latchkey kids, and it's it's so difficult to say because Clifford wasn't made exactly when it came out, but it does feel like either at conception or what the director turned it into it was supposed to kind of parody that sentiment. Or at least, if not in those movies, then it's, yeah, just getting at that idea of, like, children are sacred and trying to make a mainstream, sort of big-budget comedy based on the idea of let's tear down the notion that children are sacred and that children are awful, uh, terrible people, <laughs> that are like I, I thought of I thought of the movie The Fallen Idol, the Carol Reed movie, which is like a '40s noir, but it's about it's like mostly focuses on the point of view of this child. And the movie, the way it plays out, is the boy thinks that this his beloved butler has murdered somebody, and it's really basically just a, a huge misunderstanding. But the boy sees it as murder specifically because the boy is not old enough to have learned that the world does not revolve around himself. And because the world still continues to revolve around himself in his mind, he can only interpret things based on that. And Clifford seems to take that premise to like, uh, like as like a given. And like, or where people can kind of understand that sort of notion of like an, a totally unempathetic child, which is not even remotely a mainstream notion in the United States. People like we increasingly, it seems like year by year, children are more and more protected and thought of as like my child isn't wrong, you're wrong, like that that sort of thing. Yeah. And this movie, it was like, but ch children are evil, and everyone will agree that it's really funny. <laughs> if like, if not only that the child tortures this man, and but maybe... if the man is like threatening to kill and murder the child, <laughs> because we will understand that. They just assume that people will understand if that. If you touch that dinosaur again, I'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's why Martin Short plays the child is because they were like, okay, we want to portray this really evil child terrorist. How can we do that and not have audiences angry at us? Okay, yeah. well, then we'll make the child character not a child. I think it kind of went the other way. Like, I think they went from having... Do you think they had Martin Short in mind when they wrote it, or vice versa? Ugh, it's so hard it's so to know. To say. I, I mean, feel like they almost, they were like, what can Martin Short do? Let's give him something. I, I mean, I think, what I wrote down during the movie was, I think that the incongruity between what a human boy looks like, and what Martin Short as Clifford <laughs> looks, looks like. like a human boy! Um, <laughs> that gap of, uh, the difference between how those two things look, it does a good job of conveying the grotesque quality of a child. Like, a, a child that you don't like. And especially, like, think about how those scenes where... I have definitely known children I didn't like. Yeah, well, I, 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 the scene I Amen. thought of specifically... Think about the scene where Martin and Sarah... Charles Grodin and uh, Mary Steenburgen... Yeah, are talking, we haven't even mentioned Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, but they're talking to... Uh, 
their shared boss, uh, Dabney Coleman, Mr. Uh, he's the Ellis. best. Yeah, he's the bad boss from nine to five. But uh, while they're talking to him, Clifford is like kind of framed in between Sarah and Martin in the shot. And I was thinking if it was a normal child, you wouldn't really think about it. It would just kind of look normal unless the child was doing something exaggerated. You wouldn't really pay attention. It would just look very normal, very calm. But with Martin Short as that child, all you can focus on during that scene is Martin Short. Yeah. And you're just looking at his eyes and these crazy expressions. And you're just like, this, it's weird. It, like, it's just weird and wrong. But that wrongness, it's for me, it works on the level of like, well, you don't want to watch this and be like, Oh, well, that have those moments where you're like, oh, but the child is normal. The movie doesn't want you to ever think Clifford is normal. The movie always wants you to think Clifford is wrong or, like, bad or, yeah. like, this corrupting force. And so if he was cute, that would disguise that. And the movie does not want to hide that for a moment. I think it's summed up in the quote when... Um... His uncle says, Clifford would be happy if you give him a bunch of sugar and a book about Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a kid, and he likes to control things and manipulate it. Yeah. Yeah, he calls in a bomb threat. And He's very frames, smart. And frames his uncle. Yeah, he somehow sets up his uncle's presentation on the L.A. public transit system that he's designing to instantly explode. <laughs> it's like it is. It's like, and it's like a cassette. A cassette put into a, a tape deck. I, I could not figure yeah, out it like, kind of, what happened there. What are those things that they... It, it was like pre-CDs, but post-cassettes, but they were bigger. It looks... It's it, like a tape deck in your car. It kind of looked like eight, eight tracks. Yeah, yeah it kind of looked like an eight track that he was inserting into the computer. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it was again. It was like but by ninety four. I have to assume whatever that thing was was out of yeah. Date. <laughs> yeah, the eight track just makes the presentation explode. Yeah, yeah like he's absolutely purely evil and a genius, and it takes until his uncle tries to kill him that he <laughs> then has a one eighty. Yeah. So, if this movie isn't for kids, I think we've established it isn't for kids. Yeah. Who is it for? Like, why it, did this movie get made? This played, I I saw it on Comedy Central, and it was one of those movies that was just on a lot, and I'm trying mm. to think of other movies that I can think of that were just on a lot. Like, they were on Comedy Central, they would play in the afternoons, so I was like... Like, Coneheads. Coneheads I didn't see. But it was, yeah, it was definitely on Comedy Central, where it was just, like, I'd watch it with commercials, maybe, like, glancing up from my homework. Did I you, liked it. I was going to say, did you think it was funny when you watched it then on yeah, Comedy Central? Yeah, but I was a teenager. Okay. So you were like, yeah, kids are dumb. Yeah, the I think, target. I think, too, I have, like, I told you one of my favorite movies growing up was... The Three Amigos, and I had a really big crush on the three main characters, yeah. Chevy Chase, Martin Short, and mostly Steve Martin. So, my feelings about, Mar or about Martin Short are We're varied. <laughs> Man, whenever I think about The Three Amigos, I always feel like Billy Crystal should be in the mix. You know? <laughs> he could but then I remember, Rocco. oh, Billy Crystal did City Slickers. Yeah. That's his version of Three Amigos. Yeah. Um... Well, the audience for this movie, is, uh, kind of insane, I've said this a bunch of times, but it's people who don't like children. So, so that's... Teenagers? No. 
Well, and like, and people who don't kill. Yeah, it, well, that's like teenagers, not even necessarily, because I know plenty of teenagers who were babysitters who sincerely like children. Yeah, uh, it's people who hate children. Like that's it. But I don't like hate. No, kids. I know, but it's people who think it's funny to that that I. Well, people are like, I get the idea that children would torture you, or I could totally understand what's funny about wanting to kill a child. And that's like the type of person who finds that funny is not the type of person who is like, oh, my children are my life, but I like to laugh and think about them die. It's like a clear <laughs> difference. And the two famous people I know of, and famous. I use that term very loosely, are that love this movie are John Sharpling of Sharpling and Worcester and Scott Aukerman, who created Comedy Bang Bang and wrote for Mr. Show, and basically alt-comedy people. Not fringe comedy people, but people who don't represent mainstream comedic sensibilities at all. This is their movie. Well, yeah, it's definitely an alt-comedy movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's some things in this movie where it's like, why did they do this? this yeah, way? like or, he he they ratcheted it up to eleven pretty quickly. But like there's even a there's a scene at the beginning where Martin Short is in in the future. He's talking to little Ben Savage, and Ben Savage goes to leave, and he lassos him. Yeah, and, but he's in the future. It's like almost Mel Brooksy. <laughs> it's like a little bit like just ridiculous. Like Mel Brooks would just like put in some weird uh, prop. For yeah. yeah, it's a very uncomfortable blend between sort of like alt comedy sense of humor and trying to make a mainstream comedy, like a mainstream Hollywood comedy specifically. Yeah. And I don't know how much to the, what like what level of production led to this conflict because it could really have happened anywhere. It could have even happened in editing only. Like they finished. I, mean, I could even see that they filmed. Everything that we saw in the core of the movie, except the framing sequence, and then Orion went bankrupt. And they were like, shit, we have to finish this movie. We don't have enough, but we don't want, we can't spend the money to finish that elaborate dinosaur sequence at the end. So just film five minutes worth of stuff with Martin Short and Old Man Makeup. Yeah, because once that dinosaur scene is over, the movie really just craps out. Yeah, it's not even like they give up trying, it's that the movie ceases to exist <laughs> once the final set piece is over. Yeah. And it, like, might as well just play the end. Like, it might as well just have end credits because it's just, like, like, it's, maybe it's, like, two, three minutes at the most of, like, yeah, well, I was, I was worried that I, I didn't know what to think, and then he forgave me. And then, uh, the end. <laughs> You'll be good someday, and that's yeah, really the Yeah, the lesson that Clifford says he learns is he wanted people to like him. That's yeah, the but, lesson. And he realized his behavior was making people want to kill him. Yeah. So, okay, <laughs> so it, it took him uh, literally till the break. But uh, would you say that that's a good lesson? That you, that people should, you should learn that you want people to like you? But, well, that's what I wonder. I don't think that's an absolute good lesson. I think that it's good to have people like to like you, but I don't think that should like motivate you because then you seem insincere and you know you get into doing things for other people instead of yourself. And but like I'm just taking the lesson very literally right now. Yeah. Do you think it could have been that that is sort of like an engineered happy ending? 
it doesn't really match up with the movie. Like you kind of said, it seems like it would almost make way more sense if Clifford died at the end. Like, uh, that would have been a way better movie. The arc that the movie plays out, if you take out the framing sequence, it feels like it would make sense if Clifford just died. And then, like, and then the lesson then, was like, and that's why you're not terrible, kids. No, if, or if anything, like, he dies, then Charles Grodin is arrested, and the last shot is him in jail just, like, laughing, and it's like, but at least Clifford's not here, yeah. or something like that. Like, it, and so... It, that would be a real dark comedy. It would be really fucking dark. And, but, like, the movie, it seems like there is that in there, but they just kind of, and that's also what you were saying, the ending doesn't make any sense. Maybe they, they came up with it because the ending originally was too dark, and... I mean, admittedly, if you're going to do something so other people like you to be, like, completely selfless, whether it's just to get people to like you or whether it's because you genuinely care, being a priest kind of is the perfect, like, That's summation true. of all that, <laughs> yeah. then, like, at least they picked a good career for Clifford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of feeds into my theory that maybe this was originally supposed to be an adult R-rated movie. And once they decided to sell it as a kid's movie, they changed the ending. And again, I'm just pulling this out of my ass, but I like the idea that this could have ended with Clifford dying and Charles Grodin being, like, taken away in a striped jacket. Which, uh, we I don't think we've given Charles Grodin enough credit. No, let's talk about... I want to talk about Charles Grodin some more and just... He just, like, growls and snarls. It's so great. Yeah, he's... Cause, Martin Short is definitely the focal point of the movie, but Martin Short does not really bring dark comedy into the movie. No. All of the dark the darkness that we're talking about is entirely Charles Grodin's delivery or his facial motions. Mm -hmm. But like that alone turns this movie into the way darker comedy because like we said before, the hate that this man can summon for a well, child. And he does such a good job of developing it. Because you can yeah. see at first, there's like, there's no ill will, there's no resentment at all. And it just like slowly builds. And the way that he portrays the slow build, it's so spot on. Yeah. I feel like I've had that experience with a child where I've been introduced to the child. I really care about them, and then slowly, over the course of knowing that child, I'm like, oh my god, get away from and me. And then you want to shove their face into their bowl of milk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was really satisfying when he's like, oh, watch your face, sweetheart. Don't be so messy. <laughs> yeah, and he's like shoving Martin Short's face in the cereal bowl. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. Especially, like, the longer the movie goes, the more he'll, like, directly mock <laughs> Clifford. Like, they will <laughs> yeah. say something, like, the two ones I wrote down, well, the first one is, um... Any luck with that chocolate? Any luck with that chocolate? <laughs> Just like, like <laughs> that's like probably about thirty minutes into the movie, he's already at that level of losing it. I still love before he even picks up Clifford from the airport. He's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna go pick up my my nephew." I want to say Mason. Mason? <laughs> uh, Clifford, yeah, <laughs> so good. My dad doesn't even know the name of his nephew, and it was perfect because he had just bought a house on a cliff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was not, not child appropriate. So I, um, since we're talking about Charles Gro Grodin, I did not realize what an amazing career he has had. Yep. He was in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. He yeah. was in Catch-22. He's in the original Heartbreak Kid. Yeah. He's in another movie we're going to cover sometime soon, Ishtar. 
Uh, he's in The Great Muppet Caper. Ah, uh, definitely have seen that like ten times. He's in Midnight Run. And, yeah. And uh, we already talked about Beethoven. And I found out he was a close friend of Gene Wilder's. Which makes so much sense. Yeah. Ugh. They have like the same strain They of both were really angry with kids in a movie. <laughs> yeah! Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. But Charles Grown's still alive. I mean, 2016 is turning out to be the year where everyone awesome dies. I'm going to knock on some wood about Charles Grodin, but... <sighs> that's a heavy sigh for 2016. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> this year. But also, since uh, I'm naming names, so Dabney Coleman, who plays the boss, he's Mr. Ellison in the movie. Ellis. Ellis, Mr. Yeah. Ellis. He plays the boss from 9 to 5. He's in Tootsie, War Games, On Golden Pond, Where the Heart Is, which yep. is the movie where Natalie Portman has a baby in a Walmart. Yep. Uh, he's in You've Got Mail. And he is the principal from Recess. What? I had no idea. Whoa, that's yeah. awesome. That's cool. right. It's really great casting. And he <laughs> is the butt of a wig joke, which was very common. Oh, yeah. A Willie yeah. Nelson wig joke. Fucking wig jokes. I can't yeah, think of anything paid. more like white upper class than like jokes about, oh, that man's balding. <laughs> so shameful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's, I'm such a weird thing. But isn't that a thing? There are people who are just like really disgusted by bald men. Isn't that like oh, a, yeah. a, a, uh, a thing? Yeah, there yeah. are women There are women who think short men should die. So yeah, I'm sure there are people who are disgusted by bald men too. Man. Somebody <laughs> hates something. Yeah. And if, if it's a thing, someone unreservedly hates it. My mom would say, pick your battles. Yes. <laughs> my mom would say, I love my bald husband. <laughs> my mom would also say that. <laughs> um... So I want. Let's have a. Re I want to really focus in on something. We're I, taking the the. Let's the dive. Microscope. In. Let's take. But I think there's a lot to dig through. Which is we're talking about. You said that this seems like it's an R-rated comedy. I want us to go through the various examples of R-rated jokes that weirdly pop up here, like that seem like leftovers. Oh, because man. think about with old dogs. Old dogs does it definitely feels like an incomplete movie, but for the most part, they censor that adultness by just like making it cartoonish. Yeah, well, they they take all the adult stuff and make it like mediocre, boring stuff where it's like, why would a kid want to watch this? But here, it's they don't just, do that. It's just like every once in a while, the movie will make like okay. The first one, the first one that I wrote down was when Clifford finds out he's not going to Dinosaur Land, Dino World, Dino World, and so he they he stops <laughs> they stop at a gas station. He and Martin and uh, Martin runs out of the gets out of the car because uh, he gets out of the car because Clifford is upset. And he's going to buy Clifford some chocolate. That's it. All right. From the guy who plays a landlord and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Clifford sees a van full of kids, uh, like a family, and one of the kids is in a full-body dinosaur outfit that completely hides an identity. And the kid says something about that they're all going to Dino World. I can't World. wait to go to Dino World. I can't World. wait to go to Dino World. And so he runs to the bathroom and... Clifford makes, like, a very evil face, and uh, so he, they switch costumes, and uh, Martin goes to the bathroom to find Clifford and sees, like, a, a, a fat boy dropping a wad of money wearing, like, the Clifford's preppy suit, 
And so he comes outside and this woman finds out that another boy is in her, her actual child's outfit, freaks out at Martin and says something like, what did you do to my son? What did you do to my son? Uh, where's, where's my son? He's like, last I saw him, he was counting the money I, he was given in the bathroom stall or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the woman hits him and it moves back. But if, if the implication is that it's a joke about like, like I making money in a bathroom. Well, like I fucked your kid, or I like your kid. <laughs> I gave him money to, sh to look at my dick, or something. Like what? There's no way. He's like, oh yeah, I brought him to the bathroom and I gave him a gun, and that's why she's like, how dare you? It's like there is a clear implication with that joke. Yeah. Much like the later joke where they're in San Francisco, and <laughs> Emily, you want to talk about this joke? <laughs> no, no. I'm okay. She's upset about All right. it. So, uh, there's a sequence later on where Charles Grodin follows Mary Steenburgen's character to San Francisco because Mr. Ellis is clearly trying to make moves on Mary Steenburgen. Uh, and whose name is Sarah. Whose name is Sarah. Uh, but, so, uh, uh, Martin and Sarah are talking outside of a restaurant, and what's the exact setup? Like, what's the line She says, I'm not a fool, you can't con me twice. Uh, I, I always pick up on the obvious. The obvious. And then two... Transgender... Yeah, we'll say transgender uh, characters come up and ask... For directions. For directions. And we should specify, because the joke essentially specifies this... If they're transgender, yeah. they're male to female. Male to female, yeah. yeah. And, they're but, transitioning, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when they, they, they ask for the time, and Mary Steenburgen says, oh, uh... It's, she gives him directions. Gives, or gives him directions or something, but calls the, says "ma'am," and then they walk away. And the joke there is that she, she didn't pick up she, on the fact that they like they aren't the sex of of female. Like that's it's kind of like it's like they're it's really, just a really insensitive, really regressive, transphobic joke left over from the tail end of the eighties, embarrassing joke. But again, a joke. Would that would you see in a kids movie or would you see it in an R-rated comedy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All right, uh, there's nineties. Also, we've got all the the times where Martin is abusive to Clifford. <laughs> where Martin like literally throttles uh, Clifford. He's like grabbing him by the back of the neck, and you can see Clifford is in pain as he's being like squeezed. Or, or as Emily <laughs> mentioned, he he pushes Clifford's face into his bowl of cereal. Yeah. Well, he he. <laughs> Locks Clifford up in his room by nailing boards over the door. Where there's window. like crazy, like chiaroscuro lighting on his face and stuff, just to make him look real evil. Well, and also during that scene, the boarding up scene, uh, Clifford makes reference to someone doing something to his no-no place because that gets oh, and that gets yeah. referenced again. So another implied uh, oh, molestation uh, sort of rape joke, and then Mr. Ellis assaults Sarah in the oh, limousine. Yeah. That out. Um, Ew, and then he thinks her being coy is a turn on. Yeah, yeah, he's like, oh. if you think it's turning me off, it's not. And like, um, he did the same thing in nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, there's, I love all the fantasies in nine to five of him getting like run out of the building. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, like Dolly Parton with the last uh, a lasso again. Yeah. We mentioned the "you touch the dinosaur, I'm going to kill you" line. Oh, and how many times did someone say "shut up"? Shut up, yeah, shut up. If you drank every time someone said "shut up" during this movie, you would die. <laughs> you would have alcohol poisoning. And we also mentioned too the Hitler references. <laughs> the Hitler reference. Yeah. It's, it's only one scene, but he's the 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 setup of giving a. a box of sugar and a book about Hitler and then and then Sarah defends Clifford and Martin says you don't know the first thing about Hitler Cl- Clifford <laughs> like that like <laughs> like this child it's the Godwin's argument of like you know someone has lost an argument or the longer an argument goes out um, the more likely it is that someone will make a comparison to Hitler and this guy compares this child to Hitler very quickly, like within a matter of days, he hates this child. Not enough. undeserving. Uh, fair enough, too. But it's again, yeah, the kid basically ruins his life. But again, is this a, a, a PG movie? <laughs> a movie yeah, that you take a kid well, to? Well, because the other things are the kid calls in a bomb threat and frames his uncle. He ruins his uncle's career by blowing up his uncle's. Uh, presentation. He ruins his uncle's relationship by uh, lying about his uncle being mean to him to Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Or and like tricking him that he was going to San Francisco when he really was not. Yeah. He ha- throws a party in his uncle's house and oh, and even like small things like when Martin wants to give a toast to Sarah's parents at their anniversary party, which is super hoity-toity. Yeah. Clifford has to replace his Bloody Mary with just, like, straight Tabasco, so he's unable to give a a toast at all. Yeah. Also, bartender played by Nick Newport Sr. from Parks and Rec. Yeah, nice catch. (laughs) Yeah, good spot. That was a weird cameo. Yeah. Yeah, I... There is a lot of adult content for this kids movie, and I'm doing air quotes when I say kids movie. So it does, again, this is one of those movies... That will never get a Blu-ray release, and for good reason. But I would love a commentary track or a behind-the-scenes thing that explains yeah, it's what happened with this movie. Because there's no way that anyone could have intentionally set out to make the end product that we saw. And that was part of the thing with the, the writers. The writers had their names replaced in the credits because of the end product. They didn't. They thought the end product was so far from what they wrote that they didn't want to be associated with it. So that right there, is, I mean, but that's that's very typical. But again, there's so much stuff with editing. There's so much stuff with directing. Well, and, and honestly, like, I'll go ahead and say it. I kind of like this movie. Oh, yeah, I me like too. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. all like it, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely got its faults, and it's weird, and there are parts that are really uncomfortable or regressive. But... It's because it's so strange, and it hits all those, like, alt-comedy beats for me. Yeah. Look I, at me like a human boy! Yeah, I was just la- laughing hysterically. Or, what, what was the, the exchange where the where Charles Grodin calls his house and the party, the kid answers at the party, and he's like, do you want me to get Clifford? And he goes, oh, I'll get him later. <laughs> like, what lines like that? You know what would have been better? If he said, bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No we, bitch in this movie. No, no. Because it's for it's kids. a kids movie. I did hear someone say shit. Yeah. That's, it, but it was the kid at the party. He's like, yeah, he's like out in the back working on some shit. That's yeah. the only time I heard him swear. But that's, I mean, 
they there's always usually like one or two swears that slide. Yeah, and PG you can I think it's like max three. Yeah. Before it's like oh PG thirteen. Okay. You said fuck. <laughs> PG thirteen. Here's another thing, and this this won't take too long to talk about. Martin and Sarah have a terrible relationship. Yeah. An absolutely <laughs> unbelievable relationship. Oh, that what she... a thankless role for Mary <laughs> Steenburgen. So uh, I kept thinking about her in, in Last Man on Earth, and I was like, why does she take these roles? Like, she's <laughs> also in Step Brothers, too. Where it's like, yeah. she loves movies where, like, <laughs> or things where, like, she... men fight over, like, really bizarre, petty <laughs> things. And she's kind of just <laughs> we like... We best friends. <laughs> she's yeah. just kind of like, oh, 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 my ex-husband didn't want kids, and now I'll never have kids, and I really want kids, and I gotta get married to get and kids. And I'm a teacher. I love kids. Do you remember the scene where Clifford s- sneaks in at, when she's on the sh- in the shower and pokes the dinosaur and it scares her? Yeah. She's having that, like, rant in the shower that he yeah. interrupts, where she's like, fake, she says, faking enthusiasm for other people's happiness, and with Sarah will never get married, and she's, like, having this, like, like this monologue about how like because Martin doesn't want kids she's like going to be an old maid forever and no one will ever love her yeah because the idea of breaking up with him is not also the idea of Mary Steenburgen being like an old maid in any reality like she looks better oh she she looks looks so good in this movie she was cast on 30 Rock as like the sexy mom yeah like like, she's Avery Jessup's mom yeah. yeah. Oh my god, I uh, I love Mary Steenburgen. Actually, yeah. part of my love for her stems from my dad's love for her. My dad <laughs> has a mega crush on Mary Steenburgen. Ooh. But uh, in case you don't know who she is, first of all, she's married to Ted Danson. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and he's a he's a hard. Oh, uh, what a <laughs> hunk! Yeah. Oh my god. There was no Sarah. Talk about a. They're, I they're, just love him. They are a Southern power couple. They are great. Okay, but she, I first love, fell in love with Mary Steenburgen because she's in Back to the Future 3. Oh, yeah. She's the love interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's in What's Eating Gilbert Graves. Yeah. Oh. She's in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, she's in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. God, she's so good in Philadelphia. She's in Powder. <laughs> <laughs> From the director of Jeepers Creepers. <laughs> she's an elf, which there were some really weird because similarities. It was the breakfast thing. Yeah, there were some real weird similarities between Clifford and Elf because there's a scene where Martin Short is eating, like, basically just sugar for breakfast. Got it. And Mary Steenburgen walks in and is like, oh, you're having breakfast. I'm glad you found something to eat. And I was like, this happens with Buddy the Elf. Mate, the only actor who could possibly have been close to as good as Charles Grodin in this is James Caan. <laughs> James, James Caan in this role would have been very similar in his, him and yeah. Elf. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. She's also, she was on Curb. She was on, she's on Last Man on Earth. She was on 30 Rock. She was on Justified. Yeah. She was also on Orange is the New Black. She's just been like yeah. fucking killing it. She's she, so good, yeah. She's in her 60s. She looks like... She looks like a million bucks. She looks so good. 
and she is such a great actress. She does not get the credit she deserves. No, I but bet. she she I won an Oscar the first time she was nominated. I don't know if she's ever been she nominated did? again. Yeah, for Jonathan Demme's film Melvin and Howard, mm-hmm. she won Best yeah. Supporting Actress. I've never I bet seen she it. just like gets super stoned and has good love and made to her. By <laughs> yeah, I hope so. That's right. How she stays. I down. when um when I was working for the Red Cross and I went to Arkansas to help with flood relief. Everyone I wor- at, worked with that was from Arkansas, whenever we passed this certain area, they'd be like, that's where Ted Danson lives. That's where Mary Steenburgen <laughs> lives. And it was like this beautiful mansion on the side of like a cliff. It was so gorgeous. Cliff, huh? Ah, Ooh. cliff. Yeah. Of course she's got a mansion in Arkansas. Beautiful lady. What a wonderful lady. Okay, I'm done crushing on Mary Steenburgen. All right, but... Yeah, their their relationship doesn't make sense. I don't understand why Sarah would forgive Martin for anything that Martin does. Oh, there's just those, there's no reason for the, <laughs> they have the no two chemistry. of them to get married at yeah, the end. It's just really... like, oh, hey, let's make uh, Clifford the ring bearer and both of them kiss him at their wedding. Yeah, it genuinely, like, he loses everything in his life. A base, and then go takes uh, Clifford to Dino World, and then basically from the way that plays out, we'll get into that in a second. But loses everything else. <laughs> like basically, he, if he is truly an engineer, then I'd imagine blowing up your presentation. He's an architect. He's an architect. But either way, blow, destroying multiple projects that you've worked on, one of which people are definitely going to open up the park in the morning and be like, hey, for some reason, this ride is destroyed. Well, and I don't know if you noticed, but before they enter Dino World, uh, Martin says, I'll take responsibility for what yeah. happens so here. So there's no way that after the ending plays out that he is not in trouble and somehow... Not in jail. Not yeah. in jail. And somehow... Well, and also... What did Sarah and Martin have in common anyway beyond that? Because the whole thing where she's like, I can't marry you because you don't have kids. But there's never a scene in any way in the movie where they actually have anything in common. Yeah, their relationship on. is just a stand-in for jokes. It's Yeah, it's just a plot. Yeah. It's just so there's a, a woman that Clifford can be jealous of. Yeah, that causes tension between him and Martin. Yeah, I think that's right. Because, yeah, you're right. Otherwise, their relationship doesn't work. But it really doesn't matter that no. their relationship doesn't work because that's not what the movie's about. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing because I'm glad you... Because we complain you, about that all the time, but, you know, where it's like a relationship doesn't make any sense. But the relationship isn't the centerpiece of yeah, this movie. it seems like they really just don't give a shit about it. And not in a way where it's like they didn't give a shit about make, like developing it. It's like, no, they really don't care and they assume that we don't care either <laughs> like they don't develop it because they're spending all their time finding more ways for martin short to fuck with charles Grodin. and maybe that's an argument for this actually being a kids movie is because kids aren't gonna give a shit about their relationship yeah that's another thing too yeah god again it like always it, it's it pulls two one people, or the other two young people that are attractive obviously they're gonna get married because that's what you do as adults yeah, yeah. Boom. That's how kids see things get tied in a bow at the end of a movie. Did oh. everything go the way it's planned? Did they get married or hook up or fall have in love? Or, or, yeah, yeah. Have a ba- okay, perfect. Ta-da! Thanks, Disney. 
All right, since we kind of set it up during that, let's talk about the Dino World sequence. Oh, yeah. Because yes. I just want to set this up a little bit. Let's this, talk about This it. whole movie, we kind of talked about there's, like, skilled technical people that work on this movie. And most of the movie, like Carrie said, does not look exceptional. It's very flat. I call it's it... Like, I call it the high crop. It's, oh, yeah. uh, the camera is high on everyone, and it's cropped in. Well, you know why, right? No. Because a 40-year-old man is like a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> oh, that's the only way right. they could physically Because everybody they, is standing on a box. Peter Jackson <laughs> had not yet invented the Lord of the Rings and come up with all his techniques to, like, hide There's no perspective tiny. shooting in yeah. this movie. So, yeah. uh, so all that stuff. But also just in terms of, like, this is set in California. They're like, hey, what street are we allowed to film on in California today? Let's drive over that street. Set up the camera. We don't have to put up lights. Or, and like, and then the set is, like, there's like very generic house sets. Like there's a fancy house for the, the dinner party scene and there's just the normal house. And it's very bland and forgettable. And then at the end of the movie, there is inexplicably a massive set piece. Like a genuinely yeah. complicated set piece. Now, Carrie, do you want to... So, Emily, you want to take this? Yeah, you have to oh, take it. Oh, that ride yet. looked awesome. It I did. Um, that looks like something out of Disney World, too. Like, he loves dinosaurs, and he goes on this... <laughs> it's like he's... Uh, his uncle's looking at him maniacally, like, Oh, you're gonna love it after ten hours, huh? hundred hours? <laughs> yeah. And, uh... And isn't he in a straitjacket yeah, when they take him to the park? Well, he's in a straitjacket. I can't remember... He takes it out. He takes it off of him so he can say hi to the security guard, probably, without raising any red flags. Oh, okay. But he puts him on the ride, and he's in his, like, pajamas. And he... Yeah, it's like a, a happy-go-lucky, like, roller coaster, and then there's Terry the pterodactyl. I was gonna say, what kind of dinosaur is he sitting in? Isn't it it's like a... It's a triceratops. Yeah, tri but, like well, a chubby little triceratops. But the key thing to emphasize with this is that, like I said, there's been just, like, streets, houses, just very normal... Offices. Low-budget, easy... Stuff where they didn't necessarily even have to build sets. They probably just decorated old sets or went to, like, locations Yeah, this is really elaborate. Yeah. And it seems like this ride is huge. Enormous. Something out of... Multi-story. It's (laughs) definitely supposed to be like a Disneyland where it's just very... There's a lot of money in it. Yeah, and they like, show they show when they they show like the wide shot of the park. They have to do like old Gone with the Wind style map paintings yeah. to show the full scale of the park because yeah. they suddenly introduce this location that is so complicated and so production design specific well, that they have to do that. They kind of do that even within the ride. It's like yeah. in a dome, and then at one point he comes up to a cliff yeah. on the ride. Man. This Another is, clip, and oh then man. Terry the pterodactyl talks about how he shouldn't be scared of Larry the Larry, Larry the T Rex. Larry yeah. the T Rex, and so then um, there's this huge expanse in front of him, as it's if like a ride, gorge, yeah. Like this ride goes off forever, and then he goes down, goes through more like loop de loops and stuff, and then he comes upon. The T-Rex, which is, again, huge. And yeah, it's like a giant ro- robotic T-Rex. Animatronic yeah. T-Rex. And then he has to shoot it with a fake lit toy laser, and then the ride's over. And then he goes on it once more, but faster, and he loves it still. So Charles Grodin says, nope, that's not good enough. We're he going into hyperdrive. Up, yeah, he turns it up to 11. Also, I just thought about this. 
what kind of architecture is it that deals with both roller coaster design and public transit that wouldn't be engineering? Well, I mean, as an architect, you're technically uh, like a structural engineer. Okay. Yeah. So there is engineering to it. You're right. I just, I just wanted it's to like, like a weird. I like wanted weird. to make sure that everyone knew he was technically an architect. Okay. I'm just saying, like, it just I'm trying to figure out why on earth. The man who designed the Larry the Scary T-Rex would be in charge of designing LA's public transit. Like, that is such a, a I think because he works well, for a that, design firm. Yeah. That, uh... But still, like, like that imagine, ride like... ride was pretty great. I know, but, like, oh, imagine man, being, like, you're, you our best, you're our best roller coaster designer. Here's the LA file. You know what, Paolo? Oh, you know what Foster movie? from the Beaver should have been in it. Yeah. You know, but, guys... You know what other movie informs us of architects? Three to Tango. Yeah. And architects. they win. Remember I they bid it. on the contract to do the architecture? Yeah. So maybe the design firm bid there on you go. Larry wow. the Scary T-Rex. Wow. wow, we're thinking about this way too much. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to connect both Three to Tango and the Beaver <laughs> to this. That's really good. <laughs> Roller coaster design and, and architecture. And Emily was in both those episodes. Oh, nice. Way That's to go, Emily. High five. High five. Yeah, you know, I can't believe that it's Oh, but such... wait, let's quickly wrap it up by saying that because he threw it into hyperdrive, the yeah. T-Rex goes crazy and falls because the pterodactyl collides with it, and then his just, like, this, mouth is open. His, this huge chasm that he falls into, and uh, Charles Gurdon has to save Clifford, who's just, like, hanging on for his dear life. And then, once he saves him, Clifford's like, wow, you saved me. And his uncle's like, fuck off, little kid. Yeah, yeah he said, he like, <laughs> Clifford tries to hug him, and he says, I don't want to hug you. I don't want to be anywhere near you. And he, he, say, he basically rants to Clifford about how awful Clifford is, eventually saying, eventually everyone just gets to hate you. Which, again, is like, this is the end of a children's <laughs> movie. And uh, the, the uncle, an uncle is saying this to his nephew. And his movie, ten-year-old nephew. His ten-year-old nephew. Like, everyone hates you. <laughs> Knowing you means people hate you. Yeah, because even Clifford's like, don't send me back to my parents. They hate me. And it's like, yeah, they do hate you because everyone hates you. Yeah. And then that's when you it, it, like, flashes forward to Priest Clifford, who's like, that's when I knew I wanted people to like me. And it's like, that's the lesson? <laughs> no. No. That was the lesson I was going to say. No. <laughs> That's your teachable moment. Yeah. Emily wants everyone to think that they need to have everyone like them. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, whatever you said. <laughs> All right. Do we want to do any, like, last little detail things? Well, I was just going to say that set piece, I wonder if that's why this movie costs so much. Because... This movie cost $19 million, and I don't think there's any single part of this movie that looks like it cost $19 million, except for that last dinosaur park scene. Like, I was looking at that Triceratops car that Clifford sits in to be in the ride, because the roller coaster ride is shaped like a Triceratops. Yeah. So he sits in this Triceratops, and that was beautiful. It was, yeah, extremely detailed. It had texture, painted, I mean, it was gorgeous. Well, as as you guys both mentioned, there's so many individual moments on the roller coaster. It's not like we just get, like, a a very brief overview. Like, we see, like, what... There's, like, three 
stage in some of it. Yeah, yeah, and we see, like, a part where not only where, like, there's talking things or things flying overhead and, like, the laser gun that pops it out. It reminded me of a, a, of a Disney ride. Yeah. A couple different ones. There's Which a, ones? There's one with dinosaurs that Ellen DeGeneres and Bill Nye the Science Guy narrate. <laughs> what? That's cool. Are but, you sitting in our Triceratops? No, there's a different one that you go back in time, though. <gasps> there's a different dinosaur ride. And you ride a dinosaur? Well, there's even, like, water on the roller coaster, too, that they hit. Like, th- have you ever, can you think of, like, a roller coaster that you've been on indoors that has, like, water sections where the coaster hits water and it swatches up on you? No. Like, it has that, and they but show I've it on... But I've never been to Disney World. They show it on screen, so they had to make that... Ha- they had to at least make a set of track that would hit, and then the water would splash up, on top of having to make all, they had, there's so much that has to be designed for that, so yeah, it, <laughs> like, it really seems like 10 million was the rest of the movie, and then 9 million was that scene, Yeah. because there's also the big, the T-Rex that the Triceratops has to fall into, Yeah. there's, um, well, and there's the little pterodactyl, who is talking. Yeah. There's, yeah. And then, like, even the T-Rex, too, there's the normal T-Rex, and then when it starts to malfunction, it's, like, skin falls off and has, like, this robot <laughs> yeah. underlayer. So it has, like, multiple designs for that one T-Rex. Yeah, it's kind of like Terminator. But when, when well, we're on this, this is one of my little things I wanted to bring up. This movie is not the only movie that does this, but what is the deal with roller coasters or machines that have... The hyperdrive setting. This this is such a cliche. And no, why would anything ever have that setting to go fat so fast that the ride breaks? But this is like a think about how much wow. this happens. I well, you know what? Maybe the architect <laughs> didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I mean, that's a really good point, Paolo. But I don't have an answer for you. I can't. No. I, I wish you could think of another I think example. That, for I it, think but. that that's something we just have to blame on Star Wars. Is that well? No, but in Star Wars, it's different because it's like it's like all right, we're gonna go the fastest we can go. Yeah, but with the but roller, that's, isn't that what they say they they're gonna go in hyperdrive? Yeah, they're gonna go in hyperdrive. But the point is that like hyperdrive is too up from the way that the ride is supposed to be ridden. So not only is there a hyperdrive, but there's also there's one like other one that's sub-hyperdrive that's still awful and stressful to ride, where he's like, Clifford does it, and he's like sweating. He's like wiping like tears away from his that's, eyes afterwards. That's the next, uh, that's the name of our new band, Sub-Hyperdrive. Sub-Hyperdrive. But it's just like, it's. I just want to point out that cliche, because... I, I wish I could think of another example of it. Uh, maybe I'll I'll figure out something. But it's just no. Like, but there, you're right. There's yeah. definitely a ton of movies where you know something goes the faster than a drive. Yeah, or least. something goes faster than it's meant to, and it's like, why does that function even exist? Yeah, it's like yeah, okay. Uh, and then w- the other little detail I wanted to mention, and I thought this was genius once I actually considered it for a moment, is that Clifford is constantly playing the recorder for no reason. And if you wouldn't like to think of a worse instrument for a child to play incessantly, there is, like, the only thing worse would be, like, a triangle, where you're just, like, hitting a triangle. But the recorder, Or, like, a kazoo. No, a harmonica. Yeah. Those are loud. But, like, the recorder is such, like, a cheap, shitty instrument that children of that age are always for. Like, I, I would say probably in 94 or right after was when I was in school being forced to learn the recorder and it's like right around that same like the the comedy of the sound of the recorder is um undeniable yeah Yeah. dwight schrute knows it yeah and but just like the fact that it's like it is the perfect instrument to associate with like not only childhood specifically but like annoying childhood 
<laughs> there you go. That's my beautiful rendition of... Green sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Clifford's Getting on. everyone in the holiday mood. Oh, and that was the one, one last tiny thing I wanted to mention, which is that kid that uh, Clifford trades outfits with, the one who takes yeah. the money in the bathroom stall, he says... Augustus Gloop, basically. He, he has one line. I think he has, like, two lines, but one of his lines is he says, Mom, I'm over here! And that kid probably delivers the single worst line reading <laughs> of that line that could be done. It's like, because he's both as, like, a... a <laughs> sorry to pick on this kid, but it sounds like his voice is, like, cracking. You're while not he's sorry. No, I'm not. But his, his voice is cracking and he's overacting at the same time, so he's, like gesturing and his voice is cracking <laughs> do, you, do you think you're misdirecting your hatred for that kid just because of how much you hate Cliff? I don't hate that kid I'm just his line reading is what I hate <laughs> I thought he counted the money hilariously like that was like a perfect like he had definitely done that before that kid is probably a uh, Wall Street tycoon and yeah. he's gonna he's gonna put me out of business but uh yeah I thought that was terrible. <laughs> That's such a silly thing for you to pick out. I know, I'm just at details now. Bully Paolo out and about. Bully for me. <laughs> no, bully for him. Bully from me. Yeah. Oh, zing. All right, uh, so let's get into final thoughts. Or teachable moments. Teachable moments, final thoughts. They've been called both on various yeah. episodes. Gosh, uh, I... I got it. Yeah, Emily, go first. A shitty movie one day can is gold in 20 years. Yeah. Time heals like, all wounds. Like, yeah, it's it's easy. It's easy to, like, to hate a movie and think it's cringeworthy. Because, this, yeah, like, we've gone over all the reasons why it was poorly done. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't know, for some reason, I don't, and maybe if I look at a movie that's, like, made currently, it is different. But if I look back on movies... That were made shittily. I feel like you're a little more forgiving. Yeah, what maybe is, not yeah, forgiving. What? Maybe not forgiving, but because I I don't live in that context anymore, it's easier for me to just not care. You're lenient. Yeah, especially, but it's mostly for comedies. Yeah, I am the because bad dramas who, don't age well. Oh, and I'm always the annoying person to ask, like, why is that? Who? Why is going on? <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah, they're dumb. Yeah, and this I just. Uh, yeah, no. I That's a really is... interesting point, Emily. Because I, I, just you saying that, I was like, I wonder if in 20 years I'll think After Earth is a good movie. <laughs> but if Fantastic the answer to that Four, question is no. <laughs> Fantastic Four will be great. Though I will say, Fantastic, the new Fantastic Four did become a good movie once we watched the older Fantastic Four yeah. movies. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It's like, it's like a huge step up. <laughs> oh, that's sad. The yeah. ones with Jessica Alba versus the new one. Oh, man. <laughs> Oof. Well, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, this movie, before realizing it, too, like, this was a big cult following. Like, people love this movie. Yeah. I would see this movie at midnight in oh, the yeah. theater. Yeah. With a group of people who really like this, it would be fun just to hear, like, all the there sick was a laughter. Point, man, I wish I could remember what it was, but, Paula, there was a point where you were laughing so maniacally. It was, like, at Charles Grodin. Everything that yeah. Charles Grodin did after a certain point makes me laugh because this is, like, genuinely one of the best comedic performances I can think of. It's, like, crazy. I guess, I let, to get into my teachable moment... If a movie, uh, like, uh, we clearly, like, we've all said that we had a lot to complain about and pick on from this movie, but if a movie 
does something really well and, and that thing is hard to find, that can forgive a lot. And Clifford really uh, is, we forgive it because we can get such like pitch black comedy about childhood and performed by Martin Short, who is has no ego about himself. He's not doing this role to make himself look good. Yeah. He's doing it to fully commit to the character. Yeah. And then playing against Charles Grodin, who gives one of the most amazing comedic performances ever, simply playing hate and anger and frustration. <laughs> playing it realistically, subtly, a little... There's a hint of intentional comedy there, but most of what's so funny is how we see how insane he is going. He definitely got Beethoven because of this movie. I thought Beethoven was first. It, when did Beethoven come out? Because if hmm. it came out in the 80s, then yes, but I thought it was a 90s movie. It was a 90s movie. Do you I don't know. When did people start naming their daughters Rice? There was is a, that what the daughter's name the is? The teenage daughter is named Rice. Rice. Weird. Oh my goodness. Well, while Emily looks that up, I'll get into my teachable moment. And I... It's, it's tough because I feel like I have a lot of little things I want to pull from this movie. But the overarching thing I would teach about this movie is that a really interesting great movie like usually doesn't fall in a genre it doesn't like this movie is supposed to be a kids movie but i don't think this is a kids movie and i think that it crosses like it's a comedy but it also is really dark and it's got action elements and i guess like my teachable moment would be that there's something in this for everybody yeah. <laughs> it's a weird way to put it, but yeah, in a, in a, it is a weird way to put it. It's yeah, I was it's really something... I was really pulling that out of the hat. I'll say yeah, it's like there's something for everybody, but you it would but be, you it, it would be to... tough to guess if you watched it and weren't willing to give the movie the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I feel like part of the interesting thing of watching this movie with other people is seeing what they think is funny. Yeah. Like yeah. the parts that they think are funny. Like the yeah. part again where Paula was laughing hysterically was not a part where I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> but there were parts where I laughed really hard where you guys were silent. Well, and also, too, this movie, so much of its humor is, like, facial expressions yeah. or, like, lines that are very normal lines delivered in a very funny <laughs> way. And as opposed Look to, Look at like, me like a human boy! Whereas, like, a lot of the things that are jokes don't necessarily land as jokes... But then again... But they're still funny. Yeah. Like, the, the, look, don't touch that dino or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. It's not a joke, yeah. but it's hilarious. Yeah. It's, as we were saying when we were watching the movie, they're all things we would put on a t-shirt and wear. The, the look look <laughs> at me like a human boy. That, that exchange yeah. where he says that and it cuts to like 10 seconds of Martin Short like trying to guess what the human <laughs> he's, boy... Yeah, he's like jerking be. his head around and crossing his eyes and he just... He looks like he's trying almost to yeah. look like so a human funny. boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beethoven came out in 92. All right. So, so yeah. He, after he did get this. But that, because Clifford didn't come out until after Beethoven, nobody really knew how great he was at being angry at children. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a shame. It is a shame. <laughs> I wonder how many other movies he missed out this on. This was Beethoven cast. <gasps> Man, I really need to watch Beethoven again because Platty's in it. Platt? Stanley Tucci, David Duchovny. Oh my god. They were Wait, all... who is David Duchovny in Beethoven? He's like the sexy bad guy, I think. Oh my The gosh. sexy someone? There's a bad guy in Beethoven? Yeah, the people who like... Is Beethoven just home alone but with a dog? Oh, I'm thinking of Beethoven 2 where there's like a girl Beethoven. <laughs> there's like a sexy lady yeah. and uh, Penn's dead brother is in it. Oh, man. Oh, Chris Penn? Pen? Chris Penn. Yeah. Penn's dead brother. I thought you were talking about Teller. I was yeah, like, I was Teller's like, not dead. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, they're not brothers. No. <laughs> Tangent gone awry. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to do it. I, you had it out. I never get to play this thing. It's your recording. I wonder if Martin Short just like had it around and was just like... Like we brought it as a like, part of his character, waiting between scenes, and then started playing it when he got bored, and then the director's like, "Yeah, throw that." But in. he had a tune. I hate that. Throw that in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> but he had a tune, and then he would play on the recording. Yeah, he 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 yeah. actually had like a melody. Because he's a child genius. <laughs> this evil, this evil movie genius. is baffling. I mean, if nothing else, listener, you should watch it just because. Oh, definitely like, watch it. Like the just the, the we give it three yeah. watches it. <laughs> It is a perfect mixture of things that fail and things that are so interesting that you can't stop watching this I movie. give this movie five stars, two recorders, and a smile. And four Wormy Boners. I'm going to give it seven and a half Spideys, <laughs> but with three popcorns. Oh, three popcorns. Three popcorns. Yeah. That's not that great, but it modifies the Spideys. You know what? This movie... scale. If you're looking it's for... It's a mixture of Tim and Eric's scale and I think uh, uh, Frank DiCarlo scale from Daily Show. It's a really outdated scale. That's alright. We'll update it to Captain America for the next episode. I give this ten captains. <laughs> alright. Uh, I give this yeah. 13 stripes and Follow, stars. play us out. <laughs> and I'm at Cinema... Is off right now. <laughs> Still on. This has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.Vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.Letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lavey Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.